church family, if we claim allegiance to Jesus Christ, it's right that we come to him in prayer. It's right that if we believe he is God and King and our Lord, that we bring him our needs and trust him with those needs. So if you would, let's now turn our hearts to him in prayer and pray together as a church family. Would you pray with me? Almighty God, we come before you as a church, bringing our needs to you, and confident that you are not only able to handle every need that we have, but that you desire to. You delight in us coming to you, and you take joy in caring for your people. We thank you, O oh God. Father, we together as a church today want to pray for those in our church who are sick. Father, we think of our brother, Mike Vardanian, as this week he's learned that his cancer has returned. Father, as a church, we right now pray for his healing. Father, we pray that you would give Mike and Zarek an uncommon level of peace and trust in you during this trial. We pray for the doctor's wisdom. We pray for healthy treatment for his body. Father, regardless what, what happens to Mike now, he will one day, unless you return, die, as will all of us. When his body fails, Father, will you have used this trial to mature him? Work in our brother, we pray. Father, we pray for our sister, Kali Jones, as she's come home from the hospital this week. We thank you for the care that she's received. We thank you for the love that Debbie has shown her mother. We pray today that you would strengthen our sister's body as she rests give her health, we pray. Father, as a congregation, we also pray for those who are going out from us. We, we pray for Vlad and Phoebe as they continue to serve in Ukraine this month. Father, make their ministry there fruitful. Father, protect them in Ukraine. Father, allow them to come home safely in, a, in just a few weeks. Father, for our church, we pray that you would be with our members meeting this evening as our congregation comes together to care for one another, to carefully think about those who we are sending away and listen to your grace with those who are coming into our midst. As we care for the ministries of our church, Father, would you build our body closer together? Would you let our covenant with one another be genuine and transforming. Father, we recognize that we are not the only church here in Palm Beach County, and we thank you for that. We pray today for other churches around us to grow in their love for Christ and their love for the Word of God, to grow in their knowledge of Jesus Christ. Father, this morning we, we pray for Renewal Church up in Jupiter. We pray that you would bless their church and help them to honor you. 
Father, we pray this morning for Pastor Paul Whitfield as he preaches even now from Psalm 133. We pray that their church would grow under your word into maturity. Father, we pray the same for us as we now open your word. Revelation from you, O God, the words of life, these words that we just heard read to us. Father, may we receive the word of God not as the words of man, but may we treat it and receive it for what it truly is. That is, the words of God Almighty to us. May we listen. May we obey. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, we live in a world where a smooth cell closes the deal. I mean, just think about the last time that you had someone sell a product to you. Uh, maybe you, you signed up for a, a discounted vacation, and in order to get the keys to your hotel room, you first have to sit through the sales pitch, telling you why you should buy a timeshare at that resort. Well, in that sales pitch, I guarantee you all of the conveniences of the timeshare were just trotted out in front of you. To make the sale, the, the, the salesperson didn't start with explaining why you might not want to be locked into this timeshare. The, the salesperson didn't explain why you might not be ready to afford this timeshare on your current budget. They didn't explain to you all of the recent comments and complaints that others who have a timeshare there have been making about the resort. That's not where the salesperson will begin, no. They will begin with how easy and comfortable this timeshare is for you to purchase right now. For the record, I'm not saying that it's wrong to be a salesperson. I'm just pointing out that in our world, a smooth sell closes the deal. Unfortunately, this perspective has invaded American Christianity. The message that we often convey is, come follow Christ and find your best life now. It feels right in our world, in our Christian world, to say, come to church. And we have a, a menu, a buffet of options for you with all the different flavors and the choices to suit your preferences. Uh, do, you, do you want to follow Christ? Just look how easy it is. Let's make this as smooth and attractive and as comfortable as we can for everyone. Now, right now, First Boynton, your minds might be running to think of other churches or other ministries that might adopt this casual, consumeristic mindset. We're naturally Pharisees, aren't we? I'm not encouraging you to think out there. What about us? Is there ever a tendency in our hearts to smooth over the cost of following Christ, to make Christ's demands more palatable, to tell our children only the easy things about following Christ, to teach our youth what we think they will want to hear in order to keep them coming longer to our church, to give priority in our church to the, the smooth external presentation at the cost of internal integrity. 
Friends, can you honestly admit how easily it is for your heart, for my heart, for our hearts to become comfortable with a a smooth sales pitch, uh, uh, an easy on-ramp into Christianity, a subtle promise of comfort and external earthly blessings? Well, today's passage is one of the most powerful critiques that I know against such a casual approach to coming to follow Christ. It's a critique against following Christ for the prosperity of this world. It's a critique against giving Christ anything less than everything. It's a warning. It's a warning. We're reading a warning before following Christ. In this passage, people are coming to follow Jesus on the road, and he looks as if he's nearly trying to turn them away. He's he's turning their, their expectations upside down. Honestly, if Jesus were a salesman, uh, he would be earning negative commission. I mean, is that even possible? Well, if you brought your Bibles today, and I hope you have, turn with me to the book of Luke, chapter 9. We'll finish the chapter that we've been working through, looking at verses 57 through 62. Uh, we're going to just do what we do each week, which is open God's Word and just look through the text, and I'm going to do my best to plainly explain to you what's here. You'll be helped to follow along if you have your own Bible in front of you so that you can see that what I'm saying today is coming from God's Word and not from my thoughts. I want to convince you this morning, from these six verses, I want to convince you of this. If you want to follow Christ, you must understand the cost he requires which speaks, by the way, of the value of who Christ himself is. Our passage, if you notice there in verse 57, it begins with that opening phrase, as they were going along the road, someone said to him. Now, let me take you back here to where we were last week, if you were with us. Jesus had set his face to go to his death, to go to Jerusalem. He's on that journey. And if you remember, last week he and his disciples were rejected when they were looking for a place to stay in this village of the Samaritans. Imagine if you were with Jesus and you were one of his disciples, walking away from that Samaritan village, kind of with your, your head hung low, having just been rejected by an entire town telling you that you couldn't come. They were following, at this moment, a rejected leader. Uh, Perhaps as you're walking with Jesus, you remember that Jesus had just said a few verses earlier how he will suffer, he'll be rejected, and he'll be killed. And as you're walking down the road with him, this isn't a very triumphant moment for Christ. And then as you walk, other men come up alongside of you. What a relief. It seems that Jesus is still attracting other people with him. This is good news. They're still coming to follow Christ. And then as you, as you listen, as you eavesdrop into what Jesus is saying, you realize that Jesus isn't making it any easier. He isn't helping this situation at all. In the midst of this hard moment of rejection, Jesus makes following him even harder. Consider how. Let's look at several aspects to following Christ. First, Jesus calls his disciples to let go of earthly comforts. To let go of earthly comforts. 
uh, verse 57, a first follower of Christ approaches him. We overhear the conversation. I will follow you wherever you go. What an open-handed, what open-ended offer. This is great. This man isn't even putting a restriction on where he'll follow Christ, on his willingness to follow. Uh, Jesus just was rejected at a village. So great, because this might happen again. We need this type of commitment. Jesus sees this man's heart. We're not told this man's whole backstory, but we can tell from Jesus' response that he was, this man was, misestimating the sacrifice involved. Perhaps he was easy to just, he was eager to just make a quick decision. I'll follow. I'll go wherever. From Jesus' response, it seems like this man hadn't honestly looked at the alienation, the, the lack of comfort that lay ahead of Jesus and his followers. Verse 58. Foxes have holes, and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Here's the idea. Even, in, even the small and insignificant creatures in God's world, the, the birds and the foxes, even they have better comforts than the Son of God had when he came. Even a fox can find a den. Even, even a bird can find a nest. Now, Jesus, the Son of Man, which, by the way, we remember, is this reference back to Daniel chapter 7, and uh, I think 7, maybe 11. Back to Daniel, and this prophecy of this great coming king who will reign in dominion. And so here Jesus is saying, even as the Son of Man, with all the glory and authority, I still have no true home on this earth. This is the very nature of the incarnation. This is what we see in Christ. He gave up the luxury of heaven and came to earth. And so if this is true of him, what will life look like for us who want to follow him? Notice this open-ended commitment from this man it's really met with an open-ended response, open-ended response by Christ. Christ doesn't exactly outline what this must look like. Now, I don't think Jesus here intends that all Christians must give up their homes and be homeless in order to follow him. But some will. You see, Christians are those, they're those that have the ability to say with the psalmist, Lord, you have been my dwelling place in all generations. Christians are those who understand the persecution that the Hebrews faced. You remember Hebrews 10.34? The, 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 the believers there had helped one another, and they were per apparently persecuted for it. They lost their homes. So we read in Hebrews 10, they joyfully accepted the plundering of their property <laughs> since they knew that they had a better possession an abiding one homelessness for these Christians meant joy because they knew what they were getting in the end Christ makes no promises of earthly comforts but Christ promises eternal glory. Do you believe that? 
worldly comforts, even something as fundamental as a home, where you sleep safely at night, are all second place when following Christ. Do you ever subtly assume that following Christ should include earthly blessing? Or do, do you have the right expectation that following Christ will often require choices which lead to less earthly prosperity? I love, in my life, getting to watch snapshots of this in people's lives. People who understand that Christ is their dwelling place. And so they let go of their earthly dwelling places. I've loved seeing members choose to have a less ideal home in order to live closer to their church. I've loved seeing Christians open the doors of their home to others when it means that their things will get out worn out quicker, quicker and that there's, there's going to be a mess to clean up in their home because they opened their doors. I've loved seeing Christians pour themselves into a, a poorer neighborhood and stay in a difficult neighborhood in order to be a light around those who are in need. That's just countercultural. You do realize that. In our day, if you can improve your lot in life, if you can improve the home you live in, where you are, you should get better because you can. I've loved seeing Christians literally sell their home and all their belongings and go help a church overseas. I wonder if God would call any of us to that. I've loved watching believers around the world that I've met in poverty give their time and their energy and their money so abundantly to the cause of Christ that they just have less money for themselves. They have just less time and energy for themselves to, and less time and, and money to invest in their own worldly home, their temporary home here on this earth. You see, this world is merely, merely temporary for the Christian. When I, when I go on vacation, I, I, I barely unpack my suitcase. I leave it half-packed because I'm only going to be there for a short while. This is what Christians know. They know that this world is not our home. Do you find your home in Christ? Or are you making your home in this world? And if you tell me that you find your home in Christ, what evidence is in your life of that? A second aspect of Christ's call, number two, Jesus calls his disciples to adopt a new priority. This is just positively shocking what we see here. This second follower of Christ in verse 59 is willing to follow Christ, but he says to Christ, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. Verse 60, Jesus said to him, leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Now, now I don't believe that Jesus is here saying it's wrong to bury your parents, but I do think this is just a, a radical reorientation of priorities. Most commentators think that it's, it's probably unlikely that this man's father had already died when he met Jesus. After all, families would typically bury their dead within 24 hours of the death, and during that time, the family would typically remain with the body of the deceased until the entire time until they buried it. So the very fact that this man is here on the road talking to this rabbi most likely means that his father hasn't really died yet. 
but he wants to ensure that his back at his father's side for when the time comes. Now, in, in Jewish law and cu culture, caring for one's family, and, and especially for their burial, would have, it would be a significant commitment. It would be understandably important. This man is essentially saying to Jesus, let me fulfill my family obligations and then become your disciple. But Jesus radically reorients those priorities. If you want to follow Christ, your love of Christ must be greater than the love of your family. Now, Christ elsewhere commands us loving our families. It's a good thing to do. But he, he consistently pushes us to love him more than we love our families. That's the best way to love your family, is to love Christ more. What about you? Do you love your father or your mother or your son or your daughter more than Christ? Are you willing to put Christ before them? Are you willing to follow Christ, even when it puts strain on that earthly relationship? For those of you that are here that are raising children actively right now, do you raise your children to love you and your family more, or to love Christ more? Uh, this spring, when a group of us went up to D.C., we heard the historical story of a family called the Gordon family, I think it's worth recounting here and just reading some of this family's story. You see, in, on May 20th, 1861, Mr. and Mrs. George Gordon had been living as missionaries on the South Pacific island of Aramango for four years. Uh, they were killed because they were trying to reach others with the gospel on this island. Now, when the news of their death reached the aged and sightless mother of George. Imagine that. Imagine a mother having sent out her, her family to missions. When the news reached her, she just cried out saying, my son, my son, and she wept. Now, George's brother, James, was also a student to go into ministry, and he was out plowing when he was given the news, and he immediately dropped what he was doing and went and sent in an application to the mission board. He asked that he might be sent to take his brother's place on the island of Aramango, that he might go and be able to take the message of forgiveness in Christ to his, his brother's killers. His brother James did follow George there, and he did see some fruit, but James was also martyred on that island. He too was killed by the very ones he was there to preach forgiveness to. Now when the news of his martyrdom reached his mother, she quietly exclaimed, I wish I had another boy to send that the heathen may receive salvation. First, when I wonder, do we have mothers and grandmothers of that caliber in our church? To, to, to love Christ more than you love your own family. 
Parents, I wonder, are you raising your children eager for them to follow Christ, even if it means follow Christ away from you? Grandparents, I wonder, do you pray? Do you pray for your grandchildren that one day you might have the honor of seeing them leave you, even in your final years, to go serve the cause of Christ? Do you have that type of abandon for the cause of Christ? This is the caliber of the new priority that Jesus sets. Our first duty is to Jesus Christ. British theologian David Gooding said, if Jesus is God's son, our first duty is towards him. A man who considers that he has prior duty to fulfill before he is free to become a follower of Christ has no concept of who Christ is. A third related aspect of this call, number three. Jesus calls his disciples to follow immediately. Immediately. Here we see an urgency in this call. Notice with this second man. We see this across both of them, but with a second man, this key word in the response. Let me first go. We also see this in the third man, who also says in verse 61, uh, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those at my home. Jesus says, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. For both of these men, Jesus gives no space for a delay in following him. Now, Jesus isn't saying there's never room for goodbyes, but he's teaching us something here about this man's apparent hesitancy. Jesus is warning against delayed discipleship. Jesus is warning against delayed obedience. As Philip Reichen says, this man wanted to negotiate the terms of his discipleship. He wanted to wait. Oh, but friends, what conquering king accepts eventual allegiance? If Christ is Lord, if Christ is king, then he deserves for you to turn and follow him today. It makes no sense to do otherwise. I mean, who would, who would meander away from slavery when a good king is there offering freedom now? King Jesus will not be an afterthought in your life. You're not fit for his kingdom if you don't see its urgency for you now. And so, church, is there any way in your life where you are delaying following Christ? Is there any delayed obedience in your life? Is there any, anything that Scripture uh, says that you should do, but you find yourself delaying on it? Uh, speaking of this verse, uh, Timothy Keller quotes Augustine's prayer. Maybe you've heard it before. Augustine uh, lived a life struggling with sexual purity. And he didn't do well at putting it to death. He famously prayed... Lord, make me pure, but not yet. This is the deception of our fallen hearts. We naturally say to God, Lord, make me pure. Make me good. Make me a committed follower of you. But, but, but not yet. If Christ is Lord, he deserves for you to follow him immediately. If you're here today and you're not living as a follower of Jesus Christ, he invites you today to follow him. 
Scripture, scripture teaches us that we come to follow Christ by believing in faith in the good news of the gospel. The gospel is the good news of Jesus Christ and what he's done for us. It's the news that all of us here, every one of us, was created to know and love God. But every one of us has not done that as we ought. We've turned against God. We've rebelled against him. We've, you know this to be true. We've all done things that we should not do. And this has offended God in his holiness. The good news of the gospel is that Jesus Christ did not leave us to bear the weight of our punishment ourselves. Instead, he sent his son, Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ lived a perfect life, and he died on the cross for us in our place. He then rose from the grave, defeating sin and defeating death, so that now anyone who is here today, any of us who would look to Jesus Christ in faith, any of us who would believe in what he's done and place our trust not in ourselves, but what Jesus Christ has accomplished, well, we can be free. We can be free of that punishment. We can follow him. And this is offered to you today. Do not wait. Follow immediately. Do not say, I will follow you but first, let me go and do whatever. Jesus Christ calls for immediate obedience. You know, there's a, another interesting theme here. I just want to pause and, and point out, especially to the members here of First Boynton. Uh, if you're here, notice what we're seeing is there's a, there's a mix of urgency in Christ's words, but there's also no coercion in his call. Church family, we must not confuse urgency to obey and manipulation to commit. Jesus isn't being a smooth salesperson here. He's happy to wait. He's showing the cost of the call. He's even slowing down the first man who, to make sure he really understands, while simultaneously showing the importance of this call. So, slow down enough to see the cost, but Give, show the importance, the urgency to call people to it. I think we have something to learn here. This is what we try to do as a church when we welcome people in and share the gospel, but listen carefully as we welcome them into membership to make sure they've understood this good news. Th this is what we should be doing uh, with our children. So think about it when many of you here are serving in Awana. Or, or many of you are here serving with our children's ministries. Or many of you here have, have children of your own, your parents. You should be wanting to teach you, these children that it's right to do what Jesus says. There's an importance to this. And yet, to patiently wait and make sure they understand the cost of this call to make sure that the cost is clear. So often, our, our tender young children can be like this, this first man here who, who quickly verbally committed, said, I will follow Christ wherever I go, wherever you go. Well, we should follow the model that Jesus sets, at, sets and gently disciple our children to see the greatness of this call, what it means to follow Christ throughout the years that we have with them, balancing this urgency, the importance and yet this clarity of the cost 
of what this means. Well, let me move on. A, a fourth aspect of Christ's call, Jesus calls his disciples to focused abandon. To focused abandon. So that is abandonment that has a focus to it. Look again at what Jesus said in that last verse of our passage. Verse 62. Jesus said to him, No one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Apparently, Jesus was discerning that this man's delay to, to go back and say farewell was attributed to an underlying double-mindedness. This man's focus, his, his attention, his, his allegiance was still somewhat divided. And so, Jesus gives us this example. He gives the example of, of plowing a field. Here's the picture. So, plowing a field would require complete attention on the task in front of you. Especially in Palestine, where the, the, the rocky terrain, if you hit a rock, could just send your plow veering off one way or the other. You would have to plow fully focused, with, with one hand on the plow and the other hand goading the oxen, and with your eyes looking directly out in front of you to where you're, you're steering the plow, ensuring that the furrow, the, the, what you're digging in the ground, was a straight line. We, we know this, by the way, in our own lives, don't we? If you've ever taught somebody to drive a car, you've probably told them to stop looking down at the lane in front of you because the car will just go back and forth as you try to keep the lane. Look up ahead. Focus where you're headed to drive a straight line. Or if you're, you're uh, cutting a lawn with a mower, you don't, you don't look behind you to see that your line is straight as you cut across the field. You, you pick something off in the distance. You go, I'm going towards that tree. And that's how you cut a straight line. So it is with plowing in the Christian life. We look ahead, forward to the heavenly reward. We are otherworldly in our following Christ. We don't look back on what we've left, but we drive the straightest lines when our eyes are fixed forward on the coming kingdom. This otherworldly perspective, by the way, seems to also be what Jesus was talking about back with the other man when he said, uh, let the dead bury their dead. Let the spiritually dead those who don't have this life in the kingdom, let them take care of these earthly things. You be focused on the kingdom. So if you're here today, and if you want to follow Christ, fix your eyes on Christ. Don't look back. Don't look back. I wonder in what ways are you tempted to look back? Maybe that would be a good uh, question to discuss with a friend this week or over lunch. Is there still sin that just looks good to you, that tempts you? Maybe you'll remember Lot's wife, nearly escaped Sodom and Gomorrah, but she looked back. Are you looking back? Maybe you'll remember the Israelites, delivered from Egypt, they experienced redemption, and yet still looked back, wishing for their land of slavery. Numbers 11.5, they complained, we remember the, the fish we ate in Egypt that cost nothing. The cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the onions, the garlic. By the way, we don't have records of them actually enjoying these things. And cost nothing? 
Oh, nothing other than slavery. Nothing other than your very lives. That's what it costs you. Oh, church, as you plow through the Christian life, don't look back on the past life that you should have left behind. Jesus calls his disciples to this complete abandon. It's a, it's a focused abandon that doesn't look back. Oh, friends, with, with heaven in front of us, why would we want to look back? We should conclude. Let me just end with a, a simple and a final note. Jesus calls his disciples to follow him. Number five. Verse 59 stated explicitly. Jesus said, follow me. Here we tap into the motivation, the, the, the fuel, the ability for obeying this hard passage. Where is the fuel that drives the Christian life? How do we even do this? I mean, after all, who among us could do what we've been talking about here today? Who among us could abandon earthly comforts? Who among us could adopt this new radical priority? Who among us could obey with the urgency required? Who among us could give perfectly focused attention on Christ? These expectations are beyond our ability, are they not? You see, when Jesus said, follow me, the road that he's headed on, we've talked about this last week, the road that he's headed on is a road walking to death. Jesus invites us to come after him to die. And that's exactly where we found power to do this. We join Christ in his death. As we die to ourselves, we are united to him. Galatians 2.20 says it clearly. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Do you want to follow Jesus like this today? You must follow him. And you must follow him to your death so that you are united unto him, so that you find yourself in Christ, so that all of Christ's power, his ability to obey, is given to you. Your ability to obey Christ today comes not from your grit and effort in yourself. You'll never make it. Your ability to follow Christ like this today comes because Christ has promised to give you himself. After all, who is the one that perfectly obeyed everything we've seen today? Did you see Christ in the passage as we read it? Christ tells the man, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Friends, Jesus is describing what he's already done. He, he perfectly gave up every earthly comfort already for us. He knows how to obey. Jesus tells the man to leave his father behind. <laughs> Who is the one that has left him behind his family father? Who is the one that, that hung on a cross forsaken, crying out, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Or think Jesus tells the man to plow 
and not look back. And we just saw Jesus has set his face to go to Jerusalem. He was indeed the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross. He was fixed on that goal. Church, you can never do this on your own power. But look to Christ. Look to Christ, as, as Hebrews chapter 12 says. Lay aside every weight and the sin which clings so closely and run with endurance the, face, the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus. Look to Christ, and you'll find your hope is only Jesus. Follow him and die. Die, be united to him, and you'll have the power to obey. And you can say, Yet not I, but Christ in me. Let's pray together. Almighty God, we pray over those here today that desire to follow you according to your word. Father, would you give us this supernatural ability in Christ? Would you let us fix our eyes on Jesus Christ and leave all else behind? May we leave behind the sin of this world. May we leave behind earthly entrapments. May we follow Christ with this new radical priority that Christ calls us to. Give us obedience this week. God, give us the ability to see even practically this week, how to do this well in each of our lives. Give us Christ. Father, may we walk this walk by the power that Christ supplies.